Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Welcome to Tea Time with the Jackson Center. I am Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. 2021 is an important recognition year for Justice Jackson, for international humanitarian law, and for the Jackson Center itself. And so during the course of this year, we will be celebrating the 80th anniversary of Justice Jackson's appointment to the Supreme Court, which is coming up this coming Sunday, July 11th. We'll be celebrating the completion of the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials and the birth of international humanitarian law. And this year is also the 20th anniversary of the Jackson Center itself. All of these milestones and our planning to celebrate or commemorate them naturally had us looking to the past to see how far we, the law and the world have come. But we also know that we have to look forward. And so it sparked internal conversations about where are we headed and how do we get there? And that's part of the story as to how we got to our programming theme for 2021, the work left to do. During this year, we will be convening conversations about democracy, US and global institutions, human rights and equity. We have structured our teas a little bit differently this year and each month has a particular focus. In July, we're looking at the courts and the judicial system. And we hope each of these programs inspires you to have conversations with your family, <clears throat> your friends, and colleagues, and to seek out ways to make change in your community. So today, I am excited to be in conversation with Shireen Crawford, co-director of criminal justice programs, and Kelsey Sayers, associate director of restorative practices from the Center for Court Innovation. For more than 25 years, the Center for Court Innovation has been working to achieve justice and equity, create safe, healthy, and thriving communities, and ultimately transform justice systems through research, creative thinking around justice systems and practices, and policy guidance and implementation. Shireen and Kelsey, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I like to start each of these conversations with what I call consider a grounding question. And so I'm gonna ask this of both of you. How do you define justice and how do you define equity? And Shireen, why don't we start with you? Big questions. Um, how do I define justice and how do I define equity? Um, well, I think on, on the justice question, it for me and, and being in this work and having, um, worked you know in in the justice system um i'm a former prosecutor who comes to this reform work and i i don't think it's often the typical um idea of justice that we think of when we watch tv um that there's a, a kind of it, it being so black and white um that there's there's right and wrong and there's um always a, a clean outcome and and easy answers to to what justice is um in many ways um for the communities that that we work with at the center for court innovation um and when you look you know more broadly nationally that justice is you know um a level of accountability um often um also including and, and kelsey will get to talk about this you know um repair of harm um to individuals to community and also um an opportunity for voice and, and for people to, to be heard in, in whatever the process is that um, is connected to, let's say the injustice that's happened. Um, and equity, I think, um, in, in you know, speaking directly in this context is, is so much about um, 
again, um, voice and, and representation, um, that it's not just simply having, um, you know, certain folks in, invited in to, to be there once um, you've, in, you know, brought them in, but that, that they're actually, you know, helping to lead the process to make decisions, um, to be the voice that, that, that says what's needed um, in these different um, justice system um, interventions or um, the system as, as a whole to really build equity, um, to have that, that balance of, of everyone at the table. So I think that's, um, I probably have much more to say there, but I'll turn it over to Kelsey. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, in terms of justice, I think that the restorative framework for justice is I think how I would define it as well. And I think within our restorative framework, we see justice as a genuine expression of accountability, the reparation of harm, as Shireen mentioned, as well as the restoration of relationships. So within an RJ framework, it's, it's inherently relational. Well, we see safety as the strengthening of relationships. So when we're thinking about justice, we're thinking about the ability for someone to really right their wrong, their ability for someone to face the harm that they've caused in what we consider a very active way. I think in the traditional system, um, accountability is seen as like taking your punishment. And that for many people is very passive. Whereas within a restorative framework, you're an active participant in deciding how you make amends and deciding how that harm needs to be repaired and in actively restoring the relationships that were damaged as a result of like a harm cause. Um, in the framework of equity, I, I would think that a lot of what Shireen mentioned is important as well. It's just like access and opportunity. So I think if you're thinking within the, um, the justice framework, you know, having access to alternatives, having access to opportunities to right that wrong and to do it again, um, I think is really, really, really important in an equity lens that we don't have a justice system where, you know, we are judged by the worst thing we've ever done and there's no opportunity for redemption and there's no opportunity to really offer something better of yourself for the world. So I think access is a key point of equity and that we view everyone's human life as a value meaning that we offer ways for redemption. We offer people ways to right their wrongs. I, our audience will be familiar with a lot of the conversations we've had this year have talked about justice needing to come from the community that's been affected. And so that has sort of played through whether we were talking about environmental justice or racial justice or gender justice, that when a wrong has been done, it's important that that community be the one who's helped defining this is what justice means to me versus some top-down, this is what we think your justice is, conversation. Um, and I think that this feels to me like really the underpinning of how the Center for Court Innovation got started in how are we working with these communities in order to help them both find justice and then hopefully alleviate the need for that as well. And so, um, you know, Shereen, when you and I were talking yesterday, I didn't realize that the Midtown Community Court, that problem solving court was sort of the first uh, experiment uh, and that the Center for Court Innovation grew out of that. So I'd love to talk about, you know, how did, how did we get to where we are um, and, and what, and then we'll dive into some of the deep work that the, the center is doing. Sure, um, I can I can touch on on, on some of that. It, it is a, a long and um, I think pretty interesting um, history. So, um, like you all are are celebrating your twentieth, we're celebrating our twenty fifth this year at the Center for Court Innovation. Um, but before the center existed, um, there was Midtown Community Court, and um, I'm not sure how many New Yorkers we have with us, but this is back in the um, mid to late 90s in the Times Square you know, area of Manhattan. Um, it looked and felt very different than it does today. Um, sometimes today is compared to like a sort of a Disneyland feel of tourists and it's safe and um, there's um, all kinds of commercial hustle and bustle in Broadway and um, it, you know, in the late 90s, there often what was referred to um, as quality of life crimes were quite prevalent. And, and now I think we would call them often crimes of poverty, um, but, you know, low level um, sort of offenses. Um, and in addition to obviously the city was experiencing much more serious um, violent crime at the time. And um, the court, you know, I, I, I 
you know, history passed down to me. So I, you know, I, I, I'm sure that I, I'm missing some of the elements, but um, it was, you know, a lot of great thinkers, um, innovative people um, that have gone on to do amazing things. Um, one of them being um, Herb Sturz, who we lost recently, um, who's a leader in the field. Um, John Feinblatt, um, Jeremy Travis, who, who used to uh, be the president of John Jay College, um, you know, the, these folks who were part, you know, at the table in, in different ways thinking about how can we solve for this? What can we do differently um, than we've been doing? And, and often um, one of the things that comes up when people talk about the early days of Midtown is that prosecutors and judges had really limited um, options. It was, you know, pay a fine, go to jail um, or, or nothing or maybe a probation, but there really wasn't anything else um, available to those, you know, players, um, you know, I guess it would include defense in that too, but um, prosecutors and judges for resolving these kinds of cases. So you would see the cyclical nature of, of things, um, people coming in and out, but um, the same sort of incidents um, occurring in the community. And so the court was just this really original idea of, of trying something different. And, and that's very much, I think, the basis of the center, you know, going forward 25 years of um, trying something different, um, taking a risk, which I think is often um, considered to be a little bit scary in the criminal justice space. We like to do what's safe and what we think we know um, is, is, you know, kind of quote unquote, the, the right thing to do or the response. Um, and so this idea generated um, of what if this court, you know, had a dedicated judge and, and dedicated staff. And I think the biggest kind of transformative thing that's carried on is social workers in the courtroom, um, you know, a different type of practitioner present um, to help address the issues coming before the court. And so the court, I, I guess I think of it in two ways. You have... Um, the community, the conditions in the community that make people, you know, feel unsafe. Um, and that's, you know, across um, the full community, even people who may be being arrested also feeling unsafe. Um, but also that there's the conditions in people's lives, um, whether it be, you know, housing or food insecurity, um, mental health issues, um, substance abuse issues, that um, if you were able to offer something to address those things, um, could you, you know, put, put some sort of slow or stop to that cyclical nature of people coming um, repeatedly through the system and there only being one res response of, of arrest and then, you know, um, these limited, outcomes. And so the court really kind of stepped into the space of um, offering this in partnership with the, the court system of, of New York State. Um, and so the center was built of this public-private partnership with the courts. Um, Midtown was sort of the, um, the initial experiment. And then we've just continued to grow from there. You know, our second um, community court was a Red Hook Community Justice Center. Um, and this idea of testing new ideas in the court space, but then we also started to test new ideas in, you know, in partnership with more deeply with community that was separate from the courts. Um, so community was always part of that court piece, but then we sort of expanded that. And with that, what has been always at the, the base of our principles is being able to have data and research to support what we do, um, to understand what we're doing, understand our impact. Um, and then what, what we you know do more broadly is what we refer to as um, expert assistance or technical assistance, and so taking what we've learned and bringing it out to the world, you know, having jurisdictions um, reach out to us and say we want a community court, but obviously their community, their conditions, their issues may look different than the middle of Midtown Manhattan, right? So our teams are able to um, sit down with those community leaders, you know, mayors, police, um, chiefs, um, community members, and hear and understand what, what are the needs of that community? How might a community court take shape there? Um, and that's just, just one of many examples of um, our work, you know, nationally and internationally, where we've been able to take what we've learned and share it with other jurisdictions for them to map it on um, for, for their communities to, to take this learning forward. Well, and that sounds like a good transition into a discussion about restorative justice as well, since that community piece is so important. And we spoke, so last year we had um, Riaz Kanji uh, with us to talk about the McGirt decision. And we talked a little bit about the peacemaking courts um, and how the tribal justice system 
differs from the traditional, the, I guess, the mainstream U.S. justice system and how there are a number of U.S. courts that are now incorporating some of those principles into the work that we're doing. And so, Kelsey, I'd love to get your thoughts on what are some of the hallmarks of restorative justice and then what are the goals of that? Right. I think when you think about the hallmarks of restorative justice, I think we go back to this relational piece and this relationship piece, which is really at the heart of an RJ process. And in addition to that, it's really an intentional space, an intentional space that you create where there is deep listening and understanding and storytelling and connection. You know, at the heart of RJ principles is the belief that we want to be interconnected as people and that when we act out in an antisocial behavior, that is a demonstration of like a strain in our relationships and that if we want to reduce harm, then we do that through strengthening our relationships. So I think the goal of a restorative process is to really center the people who are most impacted by the harm and allow them to determine how to resolve it, which I think is very different than our traditional system where the government and the state is at the center of our response to harm. If a harm happens between a community member or a ham harm happens between people in a family, we view that as a crime against the state. Whereas within a restorative framework, we see that as an opportunity to really strengthen those relationships where we put people in a process where we're asking the person who committed the harm to hear about the actions that they take and, and the harm that was caused and that they take steps to actively repair that harm, to make amends and to change any patterns that may have developed that prevent that harm from happening in the future. So I think it's a really different framework with really different goals. And I think the goals are around prevention and around strengthening of relationships and healing past harms. Is there an element of, I would say, conscious desire in this? You know, what if it, it feels like a system that really only works if everybody is receptive to it. Right. So if, if anyone is, if any one of those parties is resistant, so how do you, or do you work with the communities to help them understand the benefits of this type of work? And I think surprisingly, I feel like we haven't really worked very hard to convince the community to do it and more so to have the system trust that the community can handle. I think inherently people want to solve their own problems. Inherently, people want to sit down with their family members, with their other with people in their community and hatch out the harm and talk about where the causes are coming from and how to prevent this from happening. I think we naturally do this in our own personal lives. So I think the community it hasn't been very hard to convince them. I think that the system is now getting to a place where they're open to the idea and see the success that RJ has had and that it's really something that people want. And with that said, it's not for everyone. So I think that it is a space where it's an intentional space. So you have to volunteer to be in that space. When we're screening cases for any of our programs, we're looking for people who want to sit down with the party who harmed them. We're looking for people who want to take accountability for their actions, who want to make amends. And you know, if someone is saying, hey, I didn't do it, then an RJ process isn't for you. If we have someone who's experiencing a harm who's saying, I can't sit in a process with them. I want the traditional process, then the process isn't for them. But I think that there's a large opportunity for RJ and that there's a lot of people who really want it and are willing to participate in it. Is this something that tends to be used with, you know, we started talking about the Midtown Community Court and how that was really to address some of those lower level crimes. Is that where restorative justice is at this point as well? Or is it also working its way up into more severe traditional crimes? Well, I think RJ really exists in a range. Um, I think that some of the lower level crimes that people think aren't a big deal, uh, people really, the RJ process helps people. It helps family members who may have just really gotten into a scuffle and the system got involved, but like helps them heal and take steps to moving forward and strengthening that relationship. On the other end, I think that we've seen that people have really benefited. People who experienced serious harm or lost a loved one from sitting across from the person who took their loved one away and really hearing them out, hearing their story, hearing the apologies they want to offer, hearing what they intend to do with their life moving forward, having caused this kind of harm. So I think that there is really an opportunity for RJ in, in lots of different spaces. And then outside of the harm context, RJ is really a great tool for use for community building. So I think that I also have experience running RJ programming in schools where a lot of our work was really around building a healthy, open community for students and that when they're in better relationship with each other, when someone does step on someone's foot, it doesn't erupt into the largest harm or a fight because I know a little bit about you. You talked about your mom in circle last week. I can offer you the grace 
when we're in conflict because I have a better relationship with you. That makes a lot of sense. The And Shereen, you mentioned some of the data and that research. Um, and I'm not sure if it's Shereen or Kelsey who's better equipped to address this, but how does that data function in, you know, factor into, um, you know, Kelsey, you mentioned it's a, other courts of the traditional system that sometimes have challenges accepting this. How is, how is your data helping to convince them that this is a process that works? So I, I think Shereen mentioned around or maybe this was in a conversation I had with Shereen prepping for this around just even thinking about what we're recording and how do we measure things. And I think the traditional system measures around recidivism and measures around like certain ways to decide whether or not an intervention is successful. And I think that RJ opens the opportunity to have a broader framework for that. I would say in our RJ process, we really ask people to create a reflective statement. So it's like a traditional measurement was like, would this person get arrested again for a similar crime? Is like our traditional measuring stick. And I feel like RJ offers people an opportunity to talk about like what I learned in this process, what I hope to do going in the future. And it doesn't mean that they may not have another hiccup. We all have hiccups. The idea that someone is gonna automatically be changed by any magical process, I think is not realistic. All of a sudden I'm perfect. (laughs) But I think that RJ, RJ offers the opportunity for people to have voice, for people to say what's going on with them, for people to say, I'm struggling and I think I'm gonna mess up again, but I'm really trying. And here are the steps that we wanna take. And I think having that space is really important because it allows us to really color, some color to the data that I think is often very limited in how we measure the success of interventions, particularly in the legal system. That all makes sense to me. Okay, great. want to talk a little bit about some of the specific programs that CCI has been working on. Um, And uh, Kelsey, you mentioned some of the restorative justice in schools. And I'd love to know, you know, how is that I, you know, from an outside perspective, I would imagine that part of that is attempting to also disrupt the the school to prison pipeline. um, And also perhaps just working with students so they have better responses and better skills to handle conflict. Um, am I at all on the right track for that? <laughs> I think uh, all of that is correct. And I think in addition, what we wanted was a culture shift in the schools. So I think that schools, when they reach out for RJ programming, I think we got to fix these kids and like the kids are the sole root of the problem. And our experience in the schools is that really for RJ to be successful, it's not only working with the young people, but working with the adults that interact with them every day. And what, what examples are adults setting about how they deal with conflicts in the school? And that that does affect how young people deal with conflicts. And I think that RJ is a framework not only talks about individual accountability, but also like collective responsibility for creating conditions that foster and create harm. So in the schools we worked in, it's like this place isn't fun. Kids don't want to come here every day. If you don't like being here and someone does something you don't like, you're more likely to react in a negative way. How do we infuse a school environment with fun activities? And we created carnivals and clubs and, you know, look for outside funding to really booster it being a place that kids want to come to. They want to come to the place. They care more about the place. They care more about their behavior in the place while also teaching kids with the coping mechanism for how to respond when you're upset and how to process harm and how to hear the people out and how to build those empathy and compassion skills, I think, are necessary to reduce the level of conflicts in our schools. Kelsey, I, I, I'm wondering too if you see that um, carry over in our work related to directly in the courts. Like re, um, recently, we've done some restorative justice training with with prosecutors, and I always think of that too when you talk about culture shift. Like asking practitioners to think differently about the community members that they're prosecuting, that they're engaging, and that the restorative justice process. Um, really ask them to do that. But I know you've kind of been more deeply involved in that. No, yeah. And I think that um, in, you know, those trainings that we've been doing with the prosecutors is really like a culture shift for how we're thinking about a case. Like, what are the kinds of questions you're asking your victim? Are you asking your victim, do they want to hear from the person who's harmed them? Do they want an opportunity to have a conversation with them? Are there some things that maybe they want to share that they did when the conflict happened that they want to maybe apologize for or take responsibility for. And I can say in some of our RJ process, even when it's been really serious harm, I've been surprised how forthcoming a victim has been. It's like, you know, you really harmed me, but the way I reacted was not okay. And that people actually like the opportunity to have a human conversation about 
how we're showing up in spaces. So I think the culture shift in talking to the DDAs about the conversations that they're having, how are they deciding whether a case is good for an RJ process? What kind of questions are you asking folks? Because I think they'd be surprised how many people are really interested in sitting across from the person who calls them talk because they do have a lot of questions that they wanna ask and they do have a lot that they wanna say. So I think that we've definitely seen it um, in the court setting as well. Well, and Shireen, since you are heading up the criminal justice program too, are you seeing some of the benefit of this work in, in those programs? So whether it's um, fewer people coming through the system or different ways that you, we've talked about the prosecutors, but there are there other ways that this is showing up on the, I guess I'll call it the criminal justice side of this, um, although I don't know that that's exactly the right way to characterize it. Yeah, um, I, I think it does, you know, in, in, what, in what Kelsey was sharing in your question about like kind of where does RJ fit in, in the spectrum of um, the justice system, you know, and speaking directly to the programming that we do, we see RJ right now um, kind of all over the place, but um, we run a, a program called Project Reset um, that is a pre-arraignment diversion. So it, it's an opportunity um, for folks to um, engage in a single session, um, receive resources, um, and then and then be done with it, basically. They're, the prosecutor declines to prosecute their case. The case is sealed. There's no um, arrest record. And this is, I think, recognition of, of system actors saying, like, you know, what is the benefit of running, you know, all, I mean, to be in a practical sense, the expense of running a case through the system, somebody appearing multiple times for little to nothing to happen to being able to still engage this person. Um, in, in some of our, our programs, it is an actual um, RJ process that happens. In other spaces, it's, it's more of a social service um, kind of working group. And then in other spaces, we also offer an arts intervention. So it can it looks different um, opportunities for different people based on kind of need and um, in, in what is kind of suitable to, to where that individual is at. Um, so RJ showing up there, and then also we've seen, um, you know, kind of the traditional metrics of, of, of lower um, recidivism on those cases where a person gets this opportunity. And a lot of the feedback we get is like, you know, um, this idea of having a bit more trust and understanding of the system after going through the, the project reset process. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, we have started some work in the Supreme Court or felony space with more serious cases, more violent cases. Um, and, and we're starting to kind of open the door there um, to look at restorative justice in, in those spaces. Um, and many of the things that Kelsey's already mentioned and the benefits um, that, that both um, the, the harmed and, and the, um, the party doing the harm um, are feeling about what it means to be connected to the justice system, like seeing it through a different lens um, and that there's different opportunities um, than what the traditional um, process looks like to repair um, you know, themselves and, and, and people around them. So I, I do think um, the different ways in which the center is able to um, touch people, I guess you could say, um, coming into the um, justice system um, with, I feel like they're, they're becoming more traditional because they're all over as far as in the New York City court system. But, you know, I guess we still refer to them as, as sort of non-traditional, um, you know, pathways in, in the court process. Well, and you mentioned a word and the word is trust that feels like that's probably at the heart of all of this. It is, um, Kelsey, you mentioned it's rebuilding the trust in the community when these have happened. It's trust that the person who has, you know, perpetrated or committed this act um, is willing to work towards some sort of resolution. And then I have to imagine that some of the center success in expanding their programs is also the trust of the traditional system and I guess practitioners in the traditional system of, okay, yeah, we see how this is working. And so it's those ever expanding concentric circles out of, we started with this tiny thing and as people accepted that, then we could grow and come out from there. But that trust piece seems to be at the heart of everything. Yeah. Okay. 
So I want to talk a little bit, we started off with the conversation about the Midtown Community Court and how that has expanded into Red Hook Community Justice and a few others, but I'd love to talk about some of the work that those community courts are currently doing. Um, so is, you know, I, I actually, let me take a step back first. So um, the Midtown Community Court is described as one of the first problem solving courts. Could you, could you unpack what that means? Um, well, I think it kind of refers back to some of my earlier comments of um, problem solving um, in, in the two parts. You're, you're doing some problem solving when you think about um, the impact uh, on community and what that community may be bringing to the table. Um, one of the things that, at the um, Midtown Community Court is they have a monthly um, sort of community impact meeting and they're bringing in all folks that um, are part of the community in any way, business owners, residents, um, uh, poli police officers that work in the community um, and being able to um, identify where there's issues coming up um, in, in the neighborhood, like really on the ground. Like we know Mr. Johnson on this corner has been showing up here and, you know, um, recently every day and it, and then like our social workers are in the room and they're like, okay, what, 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 what's, what's going on with Mr. Johnson? Like, how do we, um, you know, solve for that? And, the, and, and then also, um, you know, the, and this idea of problem solving is um, looking at um, a very individualized approach to the person coming into the courtroom um, that it, we're not just a, a case number or, um, uh, you know, a docket, but, who is this person? What do they need? What do they want? Um, what is um, bringing them to the courtroom? Um, and, and being able to kind of unpack and look at that and then offer those resources. Um, so, you know, at times um, those, the resolution of the case could be, um, you know, what would be a mandated session to work with, um, you know, a go to a group counseling session with, with, with a social worker. Um, but often what we find is it, it's just really a pathway to longer term resources and linkages to other services. So that individual session um, with, with one of our staff could turn into, you know, um, helping to do a housing application or helping someone build their resume or referring them to a job program. And so when we talk about problem solving, I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's layered and complex of the, you know, the idea of the court being able to solve um, for multiple things on the individual and the community level. With things being that individualized or that addressing being that individualized, does that require, I'm just trying to think of like, is that, is that manageable? Like, is it, is there a certain scale that something needs to be at in order to really facilitate that process? Is it something that you could start small and, you know, you know, I'm just trying to like, that feels like the perfect solution, but it also feels a little overwhelming if, you know, rather than dealing with kind of a class of things, you have to come up with a solution for every individual person. Yeah, I mean, it is it is much more labor intensive than just kind of, you know, shuffling along and having a, a rote um, response for, for each, you know, type of crime or type of person. Um, but I think, you know, when kind of going back to this idea of our research and seeing what works and where the impact is, is that there are the longer term um, effects for community and for individuals when you invest that extra time, attention and, you know, detail to um, what is needed. And I think of that similarly with the RJ process, that it is much more labor intensive. It requires um, emotional labor, you know, like real work um, that, but the long-term outcomes are, are greater and longer lasting. And so I think that's the harder, one of the harder things in our society is like this instant gratification. I mean, do I have to think like, okay, you're like, you could just send a person to jail and then they kind of leave your community. You don't see them. Um, you don't really, there's no one else has to do the emotional labor or the lift other than, you know, that person and the, their immediate family often, or it's even extended, but, um, like the, what we know also, you know, the research tells us that that doesn't give us, you know, safer communities. It doesn't give us better outcomes in the long term. And, and frankly, that person isn't better off when, you know, that process is, is done for them. Um, so, 
it's kind of that challenge of getting people to see that this investment is worth it when you can't always see the results immediately. Well, and that sounds as if um, that, uh, it sounds as if this work is really designed to get to both the roots of the person, the individual, but also perhaps the roots in the community that are enabling this to happen, or at least that are not counterbalancing it or supporting people in a way that would reduce these challenges. Am I, am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Are there any particular success stories that you would like to highlight? And Kelsey, I'm going to look at you with restorative justice first, um, that you think that, you know, this is, this is really a great way to showcase just, just what restorative justice does. Um, yeah, I can, there are definitely a bunch of success. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm thinking of a family case that we had, you know, recently where, you know, get two family members who were really in breakdown and, you know, cops were called and it wasn't a serious harm, but there was definitely a disruption in the home. And we were able to bring this family together in a restorative process and not just the two people involved, but also the other people living in the home who were like affected by them being in conflict and really having an opportunity to sit with this family and identify like active things that they want to do as a family moving forward to prevent harm from happening in the house to kind of talk about they had lost a loved one that everyone was really still grieving and that was also mixed into why conflict was happening and offering that family a space to really sit there you know with RJ facilitators and with community volunteers who can then share their stories you're not the only family in conflict I fight with my sister all the time like and being able to have that human connection and then allowing people the space to come up with agreements, which is usually really a central part of the restorative process for how we're going to move forward. And, you know, out of this, this case, we had a you know, young woman identify career goals and, you know, complete her GED process. And this was a very small case. And we continued to follow up with the family and see how things were going. And it really offered them a resolution that I think there's no way the traditional system could have offered what that space created for that family. So I think that that's really, really, really important. So we have an audience question from Helena and this feels like a good place to ask it. So given the significant blowback that Philadelphia prosecutor Larry Krasner has received in his efforts to pursue justice, do you think there needs to be more public discussion around vengeance versus justice as the prosecutor's goal on behalf of the victim? And Shereen, this feels like this goes back to the conversation we were just having. Yeah. Um, so the, the short answer is yes. I think there needs to be more discussion around that. Um, I, I've actually used um, recently in conversation the Larry Krasner example, although there was great pushback um, on many levels, um, he was reelected. Um, and so I, I think that that says something. Um, about you know overall community buy-in to this idea of, of shifting the way you know the business as usual of the prosecutor's office, um, and I I think we do need um, you know it's it's a culture sh change you know this idea of you you've done wrong you've hurt me you, you know and this automatic reaction that we have of um, what that quote unquote punishment should look like, or, or you know, as, as the, um, the individual asking the question about vengeance of, um, but, and I think this also really speaks to, to Kelsey's work um, that what we, what people really need and want when you are um, harmed by um, another person is an opportunity to be heard. And um, I think if we could create more space for that um, on, on so many levels, um, you know, from the schools to the criminal justice system, just to, to community simply, um, you know, some of what the, the Center for Court Innovation does is also our, you know, community work and being able to have that engagement before people hit the justice system, you know, like creating opportunities and spaces for this um, without having to have an arrest or a visit to a courtroom. And so, um, yes, I think we need more, more of that. Well, and this, this, I am mindful of, this feels like a hard conversation to shift because I feel, especially if we just focus on prosecutors for a moment, so many of them run on their record of this is how many people I convicted during my last time, or this is how many people the guy or woman who is currently in the job didn't convict. Um, and so 
clearly that's been seen as the effective way to get elected. So any thoughts on how we begin to shift that conversation from, are these really the right metrics that we should be looking at? Like, is it that your number of convictions aren't important? It's more, I don't really mean the quality, like what are the circumstances around that or or how, how is that, how is that functioning in the community? And how do we start, how do we start shifting those conversations? I think we, we've had some success with just the RJ trainings that we've been offering to DAs is that they're getting, this is the first opportunity where they can sit and we have them actually sit in circle and like talk about how do you actually personally feel about your work? Not like, how does it feel when you send someone away? How does it feel when you're talking to victims? Is this why you came to the job? And we had a lot of them share that like, they thought the job was going to be completely different. And they see the limitations and not that they want to get rid of the entire system. They see that there's a place for it, but that there's a huge gap that's not being filled currently and that we need more options. We need other alternatives from the traditional system. So I think that just offering spaces for the DAs to be reflective. And I think that naturally we are a reactionary culture. And that when you sit back and you reflect on the work you're doing and what your goals are, I think that there's lots of opportunities to shift culture just by having those conversations. And I think to add to, to what Kelsey has said, and the, this question, I have a, a strong belief um, personally that to really change um, the way our criminal justice system works, it requires a change of the prosecutor. And I think to this point of um, the metrics is, is huge. It's like what gets measured gets done, what, what gets measured is deemed success. And I've seen some really impressive things from, from prosecutors' offices um, in the last, I would say, like you know, seven to 10 years, um, but especially in the last few years. And, and I don't know, you know if you follow the Manhattan DA's race, which is not quite over, but I mean, it was a pretty packed field. And what folks were standing on was, was all reform, like what they were not going to prosecute, how they were going to reduce budgets. And I think if you did, you know, whatever, if we looked at this 30 years ago, it was exactly what, what you pointed out, Kristen, is it like how many convictions, how long were, you know, those sentences for those, those folks, you know? Um, and, and now it, like the, the, it's really the pendulum is, is shifting. It, it's like to stand up and, and try to be elected um, you're having to, you know, kind of put forward a, a new set of uh, criteria for how you'll do the job. And I've seen um, also like um, there's the Institute for Innovation and Prosecution, which is like serving as sort of a, a hub for elected DAs to come to and get um, information and resource about how to do things differently. And they recently, it, it's been a lot of big urban cities, right, that are able to do this. But I saw that recently they started a campaign. Um, I think it's called Beyond Big Cities or something to that effect. So like these smaller jurisdictions um, that are often, you know, a bit more conservative that are also wanting to find these tools to, to have different metrics. Um, and I think just the last note on that, I was excited to hear um, in the current Manhattan DA's office, um, what they're asking, you know, they used to always measure like how many trials have you had or how many convictions, you know, kind of thing traditionally. And now they're asking um, in their kind of reviews of, of their line assistance, like how often are you offering an alternative to incarceration? How often are you going out to speak with community? So, you know, I imagine that it will take take years to really have that culture change there. Um, but like th those things seem to be introduced. And that's, and I have to imagine part of that goes back a little bit to that ripple effect that I was talking about earlier too, that you have to see it in some place first before you perhaps want to adopt it in your community to get a sense of how successful is that going to be or, or how are people receiving it. Um, and so that also feels like something that would be most likely to start in a larger city that is dealing with volumes of this and then sort of hopefully ripple out from there into, into smaller communities and then each community has to figure out like, how does that work in their, in their space as well? You mentioned that you do a lot of um, consulting work uh, with, with other communities as well about these principles and how, how this could work in those, com those communities. Could you share a little bit about those conversations as well and what you're seeing or what, what other communities are, are, are working on or working towards? Yeah, Kelsey, you want me to? Sure. Like that. Um, 
So, I mean, I think we see this in a lot of different spaces. I think the one example that's coming to mind just because it's been very present is, is the program I referenced a little bit earlier about pre-arraignment diversion. Um, and the work we do there, specifically in Brooklyn, we do in partnership with the Brooklyn Museum. And um, this last year, in, in, through the pandemic, we've had um, probably a half a dozen museums or city entities reach out to us to learn more and understand um, sort of like this idea of like offering some civic engagement, offering a cultural institution that's, you know, partnering with, in most cases here, a prosecutor's office um, to offer this off-ramp for, for folks who um, generally it, it is kind of folks being arrested for, for lower level uh, offenses. Um, but, you know, from LA to New Orleans um, to Boston, you know, um, different um, museums and prosecutor's offices coming to us and saying, like, how did you do this? How did you set this up? What were the challenges? Where are the successes? Um, and, and just some of the, like, the real um, mechanics of it, like, trying to figure out how it works for, for their community. And so, so that's a pretty cool thing to see, um, you know, these major arts institutions kind of thinking about how they can be part of the, the solution and creating kind of new and innovative ways to address these issues. It doesn't feel like a natural partnership or an expected partnership might be a better way to think of it. I mean, obviously a lot of the cultural institutions are some of the larger institutions in their various cities or towns. So it's not outside, but just having that focus coming from that cultural side of things feels both welcome and unusual to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it is too, for the, the folks that we come into contact with, they're like, wait, I can go and like, think about the decision I made and what I need and want in my future and visit a museum and my criminal case goes away. They're like, this can't be right. This can't be true. Um, and so, you know, it is really, you know, kind of challenging everyone's thinking about different ways to, 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 to resolve cases. Almost feels like a different, uh, an upscale version of art therapy almost. <laughs> All right, so I want to remind our audience to please ask your questions um, as they are occurring to you. But I also want to talk with you, get your opinions on what are we not paying attention to with regard to this work that we should be? Like, what are some of the things that keep you up at night or that you are thinking like, oh, this would be really cool if this happened or this is coming next? Kelsey, I'm going to start with you. Hmm, think I've got to think about that. <laughs> I might, I think that I'm actually in a really excited space for the work. I feel that I came into this field a little over four years ago. I was a uh, public defender for a couple of years and really was looking for another opportunity to really work within the justice system. So I, I see for me is that there actually is this huge space where we're thinking about RJ in every space possible. I think that there was a time where it's like, this can only be on low level cases. We could never use this on a serious case. And a lot of the requests I'm getting now are for felony cases, for cases that last year, you could not convince me that offices would be reaching out on whether we had programming or we had something to offer. So I think that I'm having a hard time imagining where we're missing it right now because the work has really been flowing in um, for us. I, I think the place where we can use a lot of growth is the community space. And I think that we're spending some time now thinking we've, we've got a series of projects within the system, but around like how to empower communities to really hold that space. I'm thinking we have a re an RJ reentry program that's coming soon that's gonna be at one of our community sites where people are coming home from serving some pretty long sentences. And we wanna empower their friends and their family and their community to like engage with them and set up a plan for them to be successful. So I think the space that I'd really like to see continue to grow was really allowing communities to hold this um, and that it's not predominantly within the justice system in the way that I see a lot of growth happening there and the growth for the community is a little slower. That reminds me of a conversation we had with um, David Crane, who was the chief prosecutor for the special court of Sierra Leone. And part of what he talked about with that was he spent a lot of time talking with the various communities, one, to understand what their definition of justice was, but two, to facilitate those conversations, and in this particular instance, between some of the 
child soldiers and the communities that they came from and were trying to go back to and trying to figure out like how how are these re how are these people reintegrated into this community um and you know obviously Sierra Leone different resources than than a lot of places that we're talking about in the US like how how what support does the community need in order to to work through these challenges I guess is the best way of thinking about it of, of reincorporating people who have perpetrated some, in this instance, gross crime against them. Okay, yeah. Shireen. Yeah, so I think the three things, I've named three things um, that surface for me when you say what, what, what's missing or what do we need to spend more time on? Um, I think violence. Um, I think we need to, as a, um, you know, as a community, as a system, think more about, um, what it means um, when when violence is committed, um, who who's committing that violence, why it's happening, and what our reaction is. Um, some of our colleagues recently put together um, a, a study that folks could find on our website, um, and they actually had a, a nice interview on NPR yesterday about why young people carry guns. Um, and I think um, there's some really insightful things in there, and and that's just looking at like the carrying of gun, not actually. Um, you know, causing um, harm there. But I think um, to deal with mass incarceration and, um, you know, the issues that the center focuses on is we have to look more deeply at, at violence. Um, I think the second thing which we've already talked about um, is, is we just, we need to pay more attention to prosecutors, what they're doing, how they're doing it, um, why they're doing it. And then something when you said keeps you, keeps you up at night is I find that, um, as a culture, we have um, a great deal of um, kind of patience and second chances for young people, as we should, right? Developing young people. But um, many of the adults that we work with and we see, they were young people who never got what they needed. Um, and they've just simply aged and, and they still need those things, maybe in a slightly different way. And I think, you know, this idea that um, if you've you know, reach a certain threshold in age, therefore the second, third, or, you know, kind of fourth chance ideas um, disappear um, when you've never gotten your needs met and, you know, you've been, you know, in sort of marginalized spaces um, your entire life um, is, is, a, is a deficit that I think we have to, you know, be willing to, to confront. Shereen, hearing you say that made me think of one thing that I, I have spent some time thinking about is that we see a change in the justice system in terms of how we respond and what's a case worth and the fact that there are people who are incarcerated and have been incarcerated for long periods of time when we thought differently. And I don't think we're having a conversation about how to bring those people home, how to reintegrate them into our world where, you know, 10 years ago it was worth seven years and now it's probation and there are people still sitting there. Yep. And we can't say that it's no longer worth that and that, well, those people, you know, back then it was. And are we thinking creatively about actually not just stop sending so many people to prison, but how do we reduce the existing prison population and allow people to go home and allow them to go home in a way that's successful? How do we create a system where they can re-enter a world that's very different than the world that they left and, and, and set them up to actually be successful, I think, is a conversation that we haven't even really begun to have that I think is incredibly important if we're talking about holistically valuing everyone's lives and not just the people coming into the system now, but those who really came into the system a lot earlier when we thought differently about individuals and about cases and about harm. Yeah, so that, that leads me to, to two thoughts. One is how, how do we allow for growth. And I, you know, I think, I, I, I can't remember if it was Kelsey or Sharon, you said something early on of, you know, somebody does something and they're working with the community and allows them to grow and to, to um, mature in their responses and in their reactions to things. And Shireen, what you were just describing seems like at a certain point we cut off and be like, look, if you haven't learned by now, probably no, no way you're going to learn, which is obviously, you know, erroneous that every, we keep learning every day, hopefully. Um, and so how, how this, I feel like these are some of the big questions, like how do we enable that space for growth? How do we enable both that acknowledgement of, yeah, that wasn't okay, but I, I am both committed to doing better and have been actively showing that I am doing better than I was then, because I know more now 
than I did then. Is that, is that something also some of your research is showing or things that the center, it feels, uh, Kelsey, part of that larger thing that you were just talking about of like, are we actively going back and taking a look at how did we do things five years ago? And does that still make sense? And how do you have the manpower, person power to, to start addressing that? I, I, I think that's a difficult question. I, I think it goes to the part around sort of collective responsibility. Cause I think part of the, the way that we allow for growth is really asking ourselves those difficult questions about what environments do we as a society and as a community have we created that continue to kind of foster harm and foster the behavior, the antisocial behaviors that we don't want. So I think that if we sit back, if I'm thinking about, you know, work with young people and in an RJ practice, we get to talk about what's going on in the classroom. Like what's happening with that educator who's trying their best, but like there are limitations. If I remember in, in a, one of our schools, a lot of the altercations were happening in the same hallway. And I'm like, this cannot just be the young people. There is an adult problem that's happening if it's all happening in the same space all the time. Like, what are the educators in this corridor? What are their classroom management skills? Like, what's happening there? So I think that we allow space for growth when we allow the individual to grow, but also as a society, we say, how do we need to grow? What are the improvements that we need to make? Because I think we often have a lot more grace for ourselves and the people that we love than we have for people that we other. And I think that RJ requires you, you're no longer allowed to other that person. You have to hear their story. You have to hear the conditions that they're living in. You have to hear the needs that they have that are unmet. And when you're doing that, it really does open us up to want to give the person the opportunity that they do need to grow. And I think that that's both a reflection on the person and also just who we are as a collective. Makes sense. All right, we are approaching our last four minutes. So I'm gonna start the lightning round. Okay, Shereen, I'm gonna start with you. What progress do you hope to see in the next year in, I can limit it to the criminal justice space if that's easier, um, in, in the criminal justice space? <laughs> Lightning round and that's a really good question. Um, I think uh, for me, it is uh, what I think everyone is, has raised up and that I hope that can really continue um, since the, the murder of George Floyd, this idea of thinking about race and equity and inclusion um, a, a, across, you know, I see the court system thinking about it. I see DA's offices, I see, um, you know, defense, community organization, everyone's, but I, I really hope that that momentum um, can continue and that, um, that we really think about um, deeply those inequities in the system and the history that's that's brought us to, to where we are. And it's not just a blip in, in time. Okay. And then I'm going to ask the follow-up question. And then Kelsey, I'll ask you these same two questions. What gives you hope that progress will be made? Mm. Um, I guess, you know, shameless self promotion here, but what gives me hope is, you know, working at, at the Center for Court Innovation, frankly, um, it, it's, it, it suits the way I think change happens in this really collaborative fashion that everyone is at the table, even if we disagree, even if it takes longer, but there's this relentless engagement um, to, to make the system more equitable, more fair. Um, and that, that gives me hope. Sounds like you are working through that fundamental separation from the instant gratification that the, sometimes the fact that the process takes longer is often a deterrent to, to working through that. Um, all right, Kelsey, what progress do you hope to see in the next year? Um, I, I hope to see the continued engagement with communities. I think that, you know, RJ is relational and we talk about relationships. And I think if the pandemic has taught us anything is how important our relationships are in all of these spaces that we don't always, we weren't always able to see how important those relationships are. So I think continuing to engage the community and to bring them to the table and deciding how we're resolving issues and what way we need to move forward. You know, that I'm excited about what we're gonna do in that area in the next year. Okay. And then what gives you hope that progress will be made? Uh, what gives me hope is the conversation. I think that we're having conversations and be that um, as a result of the movement around, you know, George Floyd's death, we're having conversations we haven't had before with everyone. And I think that we may have been having these conversations with sort of our close-knit group of friends, but now this is a public conversation. As a community, we are talking about how do we solve these issues? 
how do we address the inequities within the system? And that really gives me a lot of hope that, you know, I've been in this space for a number of years and it used to feel like I, my friends are like, yeah, Kelsey does this stuff. And now it's not, it's the stuff that I do that everyone's talking about at the dinner table gives me hope that we're really making some progress and sort of improving the system for everyone. I can, I can see why that would. Okay. Shireen, who else is doing good work to drive towards progress? Oh, so many, so many folks. Um, but um, gosh, I, I think a couple organizations that come to mind um, is uh, Color of Change. I mentioned the Institute for Innovation and Prosecution. Um, our, our colleagues at, at the Vera Institute, I think, are, are doing great things. Um, and then I just, I, I think there's a lot of good com conversation in sort of the the academic um, world kind of putting this out there where people are, are reading and learning and engaging. Okay, Kelsey. Um, I think <laughs> Shireen named a lot of sort of the important uh, institutions. I think that there's a lot of RJ practitioners, small practitioners around New York City who are really engaging this work and really, you know, nationally. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> All right, then Kelsey, I'll start with you for the final lightning round question. We like to leave our audience with people they should be thinking about, reading, watching, listening to. So any recommendations on books, articles, podcasts, thinkers, uh, Netflix videos, whatever it is. <laughs> I think that the center has, and that's a plug, has some amazing things that um, I think continue the conversation we're having. I think around RJ, we didn't really discuss intimate partner violence, but we've really been a part of the policy um, conversation around it. And I think we have a really good report, a national report on into the intersection of interpartner violence and uh, RJ across the country. There's a really cool restorative justice in schools podcast uh, with my team talking about this work in schools. So I, I would say check out the center because there's just a wealth of information and reports that we have um, that really talk a lot about this work. Okay, perfect. And Shireen, your recommendations. Um, well, uh, I, podcasts, uh, the center's new thinking. Um, I would definitely like Kelsey plug that, um, the RJ team has one on there, but we also have a, a recent podcast that just released, um, talking about, um, policing. And, um, I, I like the, the podcast ear hustle, um, just like kind of the, the humanity of, of people who, um, are, have been incarcerated. Um, and then um, as far as uh, just a top of mind right now, a uh, book, Emily Bazelon, um, who wrote the book Charge that came out a couple years ago, maybe more now, time is a funny thing, but um, I, I would recommend that as a, as a good read. Okay, great. Well, I'd like to thank our audience for joining us for tea today. A couple of upcoming programming notes so you can mark your calendars. And these are all free programs. Um, Thursday, July 22nd is the Robert H. Jackson Lecture on the Supreme Court. That's at 1.30 p.m. On, on Thursday, the 22nd. This program is held annually at the Chautauqua Institution. And this year's, this year's lecturer is Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at NYU's School of Law. And she's also one of the voices behind the Strict Scrutiny podcast, which is one of my favorite court podcasts. Um, and she will be in conversation with Professor John Q. Barrett, Professor of Law at St. John's University and the Jackson Center's Elizabeth S. Linnae Fellow and also a board member. You can register for that event free on our website, roberthjackson.org. And if you already subscribe to the Chautauqua Assembly platform, you will have access to that lecture there. And again, there will not be a tea on that particular Thursday. That would be another uh, typical Thursday for tea. So this program will take the place of that. And then on Monday, July 26th, that's the 75th anniversary of Justice Jackson's closing statement at the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. And Brian Garner, lawyer, grammarian, lexicographer, and the author of more than 25 books will join us to share his thoughts on Justice Jackson's prose and the language used in the closing statement. That program is at 3 p.m. on Monday, the 26th, and you can also register for that free webinar on our website. And then if you happen to be in Southwestern New York on Wednesday, July 21st, the Jackson Center is the featured guest at the Roger Tory Peterson Institute's Art After Five. And you can register for that event on their website, which is rtpi.org. Shireen and Kelsey, thank you so very much for joining me for tea today and for sharing the work of the center um, and for challenging us and really helping us think through some of these things. We know
this work never really ends. And so we always have to keep doing the work. And I really appreciate you all sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you.